Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. We are proud to share Dr. Sarah Zieldorf's LDN presentation on Graves' disease at the LDN Research Trust 2019 conference. Why is it called Graves' disease? Uh, A colleague of Robert James Graves gave him that title after he uh, was the physician that correlated in 1835 in a clinical lecture, quote, newly observed affection of the thyroid gland in females, describing an exophthalmic goiter. And this was the figure attributed to that of the bulging eyes and clear goiter of a woman that is affected with the autoimmune thyroid disease, now known as Graves' disease. So I want to talk a little bit about the eponymously named Graves' disease. It was named for Dr. Robert James Graves. And I, as a one internist always like to know about the eponyms you know when you have a disease that's named after someone when I was in um, uh, when I was in um, medical school one of my mentors said that someday I'm going to get a disease named after me he was riffing on Lyme's Lyme disease Borrelia burgdorferi he said something Zielsdorferi and he said he said he said it's gonna be rare and it's gonna be a real pain in the ass like you so I always wanted to be a Semmelweis, and if you know the story of Dr. Semmelweis, who described purple sepsis, and he was the one that had the, long, the crazy idea of washing your hands between going between the mortuary theater and delivering a woman's child. Um, yeah, so uh, the whole idea of antisepsis was a, was a, was a real uh, uh, shocker in the 1800s. But, but Robert Graves, I like to describe him now really as the most interesting man in the world. You know, like there's the Dosa Keys guy. But I really think this guy, Dr. Graves was. So he is, was an Irish surgeon. Uh, he was a real Renaissance man. He was the president of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, a fellow of the Royal Society of London, and the co-founder of the Dublin Journal of Medical Science. And he's the uncredited inventor of the second hand on watches because he insisted on wanting to time the pulse. And leave it to a surgeon and an internist to have to invent the second hand on a watch. So, uh, you know, he also was a polyglot. He was once jailed for 10 days in Austria for traveling on foot without a passport because they thought he was a German spy because they wouldn't believe that an Irishman could speak German so well. I thought that was really funny. Uh, he once saved a whole ship and a mutinous crew during a storm in the Mediterranean. He was on his way from Genoa to Sicily because the ship leaked and the pumps failed and the crew was preparing to abandon the ship. So Graves actually held the single lifeboat with an axe and he declared to the crew, quote, let us all be drowned together. It is a pity to part good company. And then he proceeded to repair the pumps with leather from his own shoes and save the day. So I don't know if this is like a folktale or he really is the most interesting man in the world. Um, so in medicine, he founded the Edinburgh s- system of teaching rounds in the hospital. So he was a great teacher. And as an internist, he, he was a, you know, a vivacious guy and sometimes sarcastic. Um, he gave lectures in English rather than Latin, which was really not standard for the day. He emphasized original research and regularly corresponded with his old students throughout the world. And he emphasized clinical observation of patients advancing internal medicine. 
1848, in the Dublin edition, Graves' observations on epidemiology of cholera actually make him the first to clearly show that cholera was contagious and spread along lines of human contact years before John Snow, who was known as the modern founder of epidemiology, removed the Broad Street pump handle. So I really think Graves gets a lot of short shrift and didn't get a lot of credit. So that's a little bit of... Uh, when we, you hear about an eponymous condition... Look, look at the name and then look up the guy, you know? I find a lot of interest in that. So Graves' disease is an autoimmune condition that's fraught with a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misdiagnosis, and a lot of mistreatment by the medical community. So let's, let's unpack this and, and, and describe some definitions. Um, <clears throat> it is an autoimmune thyroid disease, which leads to the overproduction of thyroid hormones. Uh, the condition is known as thyrotoxicosis. There are diffuse effects that affect every organ system. But Graves' ophthalmopathy or Graves' eye disease, now known as TED or thyroid eye disease, there are a lot of, um, a lot of uh, 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 synonyms. There's a whole spectrum. Um, sometimes patients, I actually have needed, uh, needed to recommend surgery for a patient who has had to have orbital decompression years after his treatment for Graves' disease. He had an irradiated thyroid on thyroid treatment still being affected with the active autoimmune process of the eye disease, which is rare, but actually needing a surgeon to cut into and extend the orbital sockets because the disease was so ever-pervasive. Now, this is a spectrum from exophthalmos, which is the woman with the bulging eyes that you see, the gritty sensation in the eyes, pain or pressure in the eyes, puffy or retracted eyelids. Now, we often see the eyes bulging forward or proptosis and the eyelid retracting. About 10% of patients really have this severe presentation, which can include inflammation and swelling of the eye muscles itself, and you can get nerve um, scar, optic nerve scarring and actual loss of vision. Um, otherwise, some people have extreme light sensitivity or double vision. Um, you can also get chemosis or reddened, inflamed eyes. And, and again, you can also have concomitant other autoimmune conditions like Sjogren's, where you get dryness to the eye, um, other aspects to thyroid disease contributing to uh, eye issues. So I want to talk a little bit more um, about the schematics because um, I know that... Um, Graves is really only one of a related group of existing autoimmune conditions, but I want to unpack it a little bit more on what the pathophysiology is, uh, given that I am, um, this is what I do in my day-to-day -day life of drawing these uh, pathways out for my patients, because I believe that if you have a condition, uh, being diagnosed is only the first step. Recognition and understanding and taking leadership is the first step. The un your understanding is critical for you to be your best advocate. It's not enough to come to a, to a doctor with a Google search or even an article, which we do recommend, you know, not bringing a whole stack of things for your physician, but a very concise, you know, an abstract, uh, a book chapter, a something to say, doctor, have you read this? Doctor, you know, please, will you listen to me? But to understand the pathophysiology and disease process gives you a lot of power. So don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to unpack it. Find someone who will work with you to help you understand it. So at the very basic level, we have this endocrine negative feedback loop, 
which is in the, which is in place in all of our major hormonal pathways. So when you know one of these, you know all of these. But in general, there is hypothalamic control via thyrotropin releasing hormone, which tells the anterior pituitary to send the signal, thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH, to tell the thyroid gland to make T4, which is mainly stored, and T3, which is mainly converted at the level of the liver and the gut, to T3 or active thyroid hormone, which is then responsible for our cellular metabolism. This leads to a feedback when there is sufficient thyroid hormone and control at the level of the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary via TSH. Now, in the case of Graves' disease, we have the production of antibodies against TSH receptor, known as TSI, or thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin. Now, there are other antibodies, including some that we can't even quantify. We're measuring them via, uh, via immunoblotting and ELISAs and other techniques to actually, other molecular techniques to find these antibodies. They're not conventionally on the market via Quest or LabCorp. We can't even measure all of these, but we're seeing other antibody production that equates to thyroid disease. But in the classical form of Graves, we have TSI, or thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin, which I'll show on the next slide, which stimulates the thyroid gland autonomously to continuously produce the TSH signal. That's a kind of like you've got a brick then on the gas pedal. And no matter how much you're going to press your brake pedal, including in the body, the production of reverse T3 goes up to try to slow that down you are going to consistently make more thyroid hormone. And that increase of T3 and T4 will lead to overt hyperthyroidism and increased negative feedback and a, a profoundly suppressed TSH. Now, here we see it elucidated via the production of antibodies and what it does um, at the level of... Um, <clears throat> the autoimmune process in the body. So you get these thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins activating the thyrotropin receptor, activating it on the thyroid side, leading to a suppressed TSH and elevated free T3, free T4 in total levels. We get a diffusely infiltrated process. You can see this, uh, this uh, thyroid gland um, taking up um, on, a, on a stimulation scan. Uh, thyroid uptake scan being diffusely affected. And you can see hypertrophy of colloid here. You can see more thyroid hormone being made. And in, uh, in Graves' eye disease, you get retroorbital fibroblasts that are being affected. You get T cells that are producing more inflammatory cytokines and increased sugars, including glycosaminoglycans, in the uh, orbital muscles, causing that... Uh, hypertrophy of the muscles and the eye disease phenomenon that I discussed, including also the production of antiorbital muscle antibodies, which I don't believe is being discussed enough in the ophthalmologic community. And now I'm reaching out to my colleagues um, in the area with my Graves patients to uh, really have a lot of crosstalk to say, you know, we have a lot of needs in these patients. So I would be remiss then to not also bring into Hashimoto's, which is, again, the same schematic whereby we have <clears throat> autoimmune production of different antibodies, namely thyroglobulin and uh, TPO, or thyroid peroxidase antibodies, which leads to, in the end, 
uh, a lymphocytic infiltrate of the thyroid and autoimmune mediated destruction of thyroid follicles. And in the end, uh, the lack of production of thyroid hormones in a hypothyroid state. But the process of this can take decades. What if we affect the change at the beginning of the disease process? Maybe a patient will not need to lose their thyroid function. And so the process of thyroid immunity is vast. And so within the thyroid, I call the thyroid the canary in the coal mine. Now, there is uh, an outline. This is a very simplified outline of the the factors that contribute to uh, Graves' disease. But there is a background of thyroid inflammation. You know, Graves is only one of a related group of existing autoimmune conditions which can lead to dysfunction of multiple organs. Now, there is the polyglandular autoimmune syndrome, which involves multiple organs at the same time. You can have concomitant Graves and Hashis at the same time. Represents the spectrum of autoimmune thyroid disease. And there is a strong association with underlying celiac, viligo, diabetes type 1, autoimmune uh, adrenal insufficiency or Addison's, systemic sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, Sjogren's, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. And now when a, when a patient presents with me for Hashimoto's, the first thing I do, um, aside from taking a thorough history and when I look at their thorough labs, is to do a complete autoimmune workup to see what else is lurking. So <clears throat> uh, the epidemiology um, of Graves' disease is, and thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease is one of uh, great disparity. Um, you know, depending on how you read it, it can be eight or nine to one, uh, female to male. And, and the number one trigger of autoimmune, uh, autoimmune triggered mediated thyroid disease, whether it be Graves or Hashis or both, is actually pregnancy. And, and you know, uh, this painting really spoke to me. I'm actually uh, postpartum eight months right now. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, thinking of the, the, the mother um, with this, with a baby, she's also got an immune system that is swinging from that Th2 dominant state late in pregnancy back to Th1 dominance, and Th1 dominance is one condition that's in autoimmune thyroid disease. And so we often see uh, two flavors. I see patients, I see women who tend to have great pregnancies followed by f- autoimmune flares post, and Horrible pregnancies followed by feeling better postpartum. It, they tend to come in both flavors, and I have had, true to form now, one of each. So, um, again, I'm not only the hair club president, but I'm a member, and I can really uh, speak to this experience um, that the patients are really suffering, and they're not having a lot of um, guidance in the medical community about autoimmunity and autoimmune thyroid especially. And they, you know we're really doing a disservice. And I'm going to actually, my case study that I talk about is with men, with a man, actually. So uh, men, I'm going to get to you, too. But other risk factors include smoking, uh, head and neck radiation, uh, viral uh, exposures and chronic infection, stress and trauma. And and I want to speak to my case study uh, being uh, TBI, heavy metal exposures in males. So... With our functional medicine workup, I'm going to do uh, a full thyroid function panel. And uh, I am in the Kent Holtorf camp of looking at, uh, you know, I can't look in a microscope and see uh, where thyroid hormone is going, if it's actually getting into the cell. I use a free T3 to reverse T3 ratio to 
approximate that. And, and, and Dr. Holtorf um, alluded to, to this, having to look at other hormone levels, including um, thyroid binding globulin, sex hormone binding globulin, and some other tools of the trade. But um, it really takes a discerning eye. And, and TSH is woefully inadequate. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, on the autoimmune front, uh, this is just the start, friends. Um, I use every and any antibody I can get my hands on if, if I can. Sometimes I use um, expanded testing um, using some outside labs, which I can talk about at a later, later time. Um, but there are a variety of thyroid antibodies. Uh, at the very least is TSI, or thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin for Graves' activity, and TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies for Hashimoto's. So what is the standard of care for Graves' disease? You know, um, sorry, just a couple more points on testing. Uh, markers of dysglycemia and markers of inflammation are huge. You know, you can't heal a, a brain, you can't heal a thyroid if you're anemic or inflamed. Bottom line. And the majority of my patients coming in um, have either dysglycemia and or issues with uh, blood counts, anemia, and or they're inflamed. So these are the three traditional treatments of Graves' disease. Antithyroid meds, radioactive iodine, radioiodine therapy, and or thyroidectomy. So in, in no other model of medicine do you simply remove an organ with an underlying process still going on. It's like saying, hey, yeah, you got, you got lung cancer and we know they're micromets, but we remove the lobe of your lung, but go off, you're fine. You know? The, the autoimmunity is going to remain, right? Okay? So here, here's a standard treatment. Meds, irradiation, remove your thyroid. One or all three. What happens to the underlying process? And the underlying, the underlying terrain that this was nourished in, the underlying soil that you have manufactured this process in, it remains. You have to address this in your patients. So I want to talk about something that I haven't published, um, and, and I want to bring it to light in, in, in my, my brief case study about the epigenetics and the underlying epidemiology for, for Graves' disease or autoimmune thyroid disease, which is really a spectrum. Um, in Chicagoland, I'm now seeing more and more young men with Graves' disease. I actually have a cluster of at least half a dozen young men who, are, who could be brothers, who could be almost twins, and they're from northwest Indiana, and they come to see me in Chicago. Um, they're some of my dearest patients. Um, I have at least half a dozen young men in their 30s, they, in general, have had a history of head injuries. They're rough-and-tumble guys who've either been involved in contact football or had TBI. Um, they've had heavy metal, metal exposures. A few of them are smelters. Um, heavy solvent exposures in their communities. They're part of very high-stress jobs. They're breadwinners of their young families. Money is tight. They're, they're very, very, very interconnected. So... Uh, there is a strong environmental and genetic predisposition, and epigenetically, I can't, I can't believe that this is an accident, that they're all presenting with Graves' disease. It's a very interesting phenomenon. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just 
exploit just another couple extra minutes because I think this is so important. I have a 35-year-old man that I saw. He presented to me with a large goiter. His thyroid was about 7, 8 centimeters um, uh, in one plane. And he presented with a very large cystic nodule on one lobe. And he seeks a second opinion because his wife is a chiropractor and he's the office manager. And, and he just he comes to me and I said, you know, you know, what do you want? And he said, I don't want to lose my thyroid. And he had multiple ultrasounds and uh, two fine needle aspirations of the very large nodule, which is cystic. And it revealed no cancer, completely no cancer, just this cyst. But because of its size, the surgeons all said, we're going to take out your thyroid. And the patient said, who had done his research, he said, hey, could you just take the lobe that that has the really large cyst and call it a day? And they said, no, we won't guarantee that. We're just likely going to take the whole thing. And he said, why would you take the side that's not affected? Well, you know, just because. So he comes to me. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, let's read. This was about three months down the line. So I said, okay, let's repeat your ultrasound. Let's get another opinion. Let's get another uh, biopsy. Um, and again, repeating no cancer, just a very, very large cystic nodule. And in fact, not even any risk factors for cancer in that nodule. No, just because of its size, they want to remove it. There were no calcifications, no lymphadenopathy, no, no other concerning factors. So of course we talk about all the risks and, um, potential benefits and decide that we're going to do three to six months of, uh, of watchful waiting with close management, and we're going to do do it a different way. Uh, so on uh, his labs, he did show low levels of antibodies for Hashis and Graves. Um, on further history, he tells me that about 10 years ago in college, he uh, 15 years ago, he was joyriding. He actually fell out of his uh, friend's car on an exit ramp going full speed. They basically put him to bed. And, like, he woke up, like, a week later, and he was like, no harm, no foul, I'm good. Uh, I was like, you should be dead. How are you not dead? So he had this TBI that had not had any mitigation. Um, he also was under a lot of stress at work, being the breadwinner of his family. He also had a history of tackle football and significant heavy metal exposures. On labs, he did show early D-antigen, significant for uh, reactivation of Epstein-Barr. Uh, in my in my opinion, um, and I've been seeing this in large goiters. Virtually every goiter that I see, I see early D antigen uh, positivity. Um, a journal uh, in Polish endocrinology in 2015 actually had a, a, a journal with surgical specimens of thyroid, and they found that 63% of Graves and 81% of Hashi samples were positive for small enucleated viral RNAs. I'm almost done. I promise. And so on exam, because I'm an internist, my patient was thin. He had mild exophthalmos, large goiter, mild fine tremor, and warm, moist hands, slight tachycardia. So uh, we did this oligoantigenic diet, obviously taking gluten and other potential molecular mimickers out. We used medical foods and a gut repair. We did intense gut repair, and I used uh, herbal thyroid calming. Uh, protocol with motherwort, bugleweed, lemon balm, topical glutathione over his thyroid. Um, and uh, we did serial labs, which had since, which normalized over six months, and ultrasound. 
which uh, showed improvement in his parenchyma. Um, I've recommended red light therapy, acupuncture, and some other uh, therapies, and we did some herbal antivirals. The patient is now up 20 pounds. He's able to weight lift. His antibodies are now normal. He has no sign of Graves. All of his markers are negative. Uh, and his nodule remains large but has absolutely no sign of cancer. He will remain um, monitored. But, friends, this is not, there's not one size fits all. You must look at the whole picture. Treat the whole patient. And this is King Thyroid. Here he is before he was being attacked by Hashis. Uh, now he is uh, on the warpath and he's going to have legendary productivity. This is Graves, my friend. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.